0: Welcome to Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Farm, ETSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It's been a couple weeks since I have uh, brought any new uh, information. Uh, Two weeks ago, we had, um, I guess, a bonus pod that wasn't really on college-related about living with lupus nephritis, and then I did have something planned last week. I was out on vacation uh, the last two weeks, actually, but um, my last week... um, I was uh, visiting family back in Indiana and I was going to record a little something, but um, I forgot to bring my computer, which made work. You know, I really couldn't do email, so I was, you know, it really was a nice week off, but that's why there was no pod last week. Um, So it seems like in this two week interim, there have been a lot of follow up studies published. So not the original publication, but then the follow up study with like kind of the final survival results. Um, For whatever reason, these often are published in lower tier journals than the original publication, which seems like we're more confident in these results with longer fault, they should be as good or better a publication, um, which perhaps speaks to some of what's wrong in in academic uh, medicine and oncology. So anyway, I've got six to go through. So let's go with uh, the one that I think people have been talking the most about, and that's Echelon 1 which is Brentuximab vidotin and AVD. And the brand name is Adcetris, I believe. So the authors in this study call it A plus AVD or AAVD. As I've said before, it should be ABVVD, uh, is how I would call this, versus ABVD. Okay. Now, uh, originally this study was published um, I think it was like 1999. The original publication came out somewhere in there. And um, at that time, they had a statistically significant improvement in the primary endpoint, which is modified progression-free survival, which was something they made up. And people poo-pooed it because we care about overall survival. And if you're going to make up an endpoint, maybe we should dismiss maybe some of what else is going on in that study. Um, However, um, probably two or three months ago... Um, the company that makes this drug put out a press release saying we have a statistically significant overall survival advantage. At that time, I said, I want to see the paper. I want to see post-protocol therapy. I want to make sure people in the ABVD group, in the control group, got access to second-line salvage chemo and auto-transplant or brentuximab vedotin. you know? And so this, we have the publication, uh, which does show, um, you know, improvement in overall survival favoring AAVD, <coughs> um, they talk in, uh, in their, um, their abstract, uh, they mention you know, an estimated, uh, six year overall survival. Of, that's a difference of four and a half points. That's estimated. If you look at actually who died, the difference, I think is is 3.9 points percentage points, something like that. So a number of 22 versus 27, whether using the Meier estimate or actually the number of people who died. And there are fewer than a hundred people that died in a study. It's like 60, some, um, Uh, sorry, 64 with ABVD versus 39 with A V D, and you're talking more than 600 patients total. So it's a huge study, okay? Um, So when this came out, what I really want to look for were that post-protocol therapy, okay? Uh, Now, if you look, and you have to go to the supplement for this, and the the authors, um, all the data are there, and all the data add up, but they have headings that don't make sense. You know, like their headings, it's like Brentuximab and chemo, um, versus, or it, it's just confusing, but if, if you look at it, there were more people in the control group got um, auto-transplant, it looks like, compared to those in the, uh, in the experimental arm. And there was quite a bit of brintuximab vedotin used in the control group. So it looks like reasonable access to, to post-protocol therapy, okay? So, you know, if you look at that, looks like probably there's an overall survival advantage for brintuximab vedotin. A couple other things that I want to mention in our subgroup analysis um, there is a clear trend favoring um, brentuximab vidotin and AVD versus ABVD as the risk of the Hodgkin's lymphoma deteriorates. So I'll give you some hazard ratios here for IPS, so prognostic scoring. Zero to one hazard ratio 0.97, basically one, no difference. Hazard ratio, or sorry, IPS score of two or three, so moderate risk. Hazard ratio 0.62 in favor of a- ABVD. IPS, four to seven, so all the risk factors or many risk factors, hazard ratio 0.48. So if you just look at that, and there's a clear trend there. As more IPS factors uh, add up, um, the more relative benefit of AAVD compared to ABVD. The same is true if you look at the scrub group for stage three versus stage four. This was the inclusion criteria, not stage one and two, but stage three and stage four, Hodgkin's. Hazard ratio point estimate for stage three, 0.86, kind of close to one, slightly favoring AAVD. Um, Hodgkin's stage four, hazard ratio 0.48, all right? So you're starting to see here just looking at the very basics, that the poorer prognosis you have, the better it appears AAVD is compared to ABVD. Now, there are some issues with this, and there is a great editorial. This is the trick that I mentioned before. Um, If you are not an expert on a disease state and you really want, you know, you should read the paper, come to your own insights and conclusions. And often if it's a big paper like this in the New England Journal of Medicine, six year overall survival, Often there will be an accompanying editorial, and there is one uh, published in this week's issue by uh, Dan Longo, who I think is an editor or something at NEJM, and James Armitage. I don't really know who these guys are, but they bring up many points that I had picked out independently, take my word for it, and then one that I didn't. So let me go through this. So first of all, um, as people pick apart this article, they say in the editorial, these guys should be given some credit and gals, these people, y'all, should be given some credit. Um... Because this is a really large study, and outside of the German group, no one's done this large of an international study in Hodgkin's lymphoma. Okay, great. There is an imbalance in secondary cancers in the ABVD arm compared to AABD. Um, And I was like, you know... Bleomycin is not a drug we think of as causing secondary leukemias. And in fact, most of these secondary malignancies were not secondary leukemias. Only, I think, three or four in the ABVD arm were, you know, AML or MDS or ALL. So, you know, and they say this in their trial, this seems like it's just chance. This is just noise. Somehow there is this imbalance, and that's important because 11 people in the ABVD arm died from cancer, um, secondary cancers, versus only one in AAVD which could skew the overall survival if that is just chance, okay? Uh, the second thing, and this I did not pick up on, is that there was a lot of pulmonary toxicity. So there are 11 people in the ABVD arm who died from pulmonary toxicity from bleomycin. And uh, I, th- I think it was, it was actually in 2019 or whenever the first Echelon 1 study came out. I'm pretty sure, my memory is correct, Vincent DeVita creator, uh, or co-creator, the big, the big guy behind the MOP regimen, first combination chemo regimen to cure Hodgkin's lymphoma, said, if you monitor DLCO before every bleomycin dose and stop it if it goes down by 15%, you'll never see significant bleotoxicity. Uh, they state, I'm going to quote here, um, another concern is the imbalance of deaths and pulmonary toxic effects, 11 in ABVD, none in ABD. Quote, it is our experience that symptomatic and fatal pulmonary toxic events can be essentially eliminated by monitoring the diffusion capacity of the lung for carbon monoxide, DLCO, before each dose of bleomycin and stopping bleomycin therapy if DLCO increases. Goes on. Since almost 2% of patients in ABVD group died from pulmonary toxic effects, and since DLCO monitoring is not mentioned in the trial protocol, it seems likely that careful monitoring was not routinely done, and they talk about how many sites there were and the average number of people per site, So then if you take, there's an imbalance in death because of secondary leukemias we don't think is actually due to bleomycin. Um, And then you say, well, there's also people who died from lung dysfunction because of bad care that we hopefully would not see. If you add that up, suddenly that, that, you know, say 4% improvement overall survival shrinks to something that may not be statistically significant, perhaps, okay? Now, um, I mean, you still have the PFS benefit, you still have, uh, and the PFS curves are completely parallel after 12 months. Now, the AAVD arm is higher, but you're not seeing late progression events after that first progression event, okay? So, I think we are curing more people up front with AAVD versus ABVD. I think that's pretty clear. Now, that's okay if you cure less, if everyone gets to auto transplant, map and you can cure them in a second line. And it seems like there's a little bit more long-term survival with ABD. It's probably not as much as reported here, but it's probably pretty small. And it might maybe be limited mostly to those that have a poor prognosis, those with IPS scores of say four and up uh, or even two and up. And then those with stage four versus stage three disease. Um, then there's the cost, right? If you just do AWPX, you know, wholesale price of Brentuximab Vedotin for six cycles of AAVD, you're going to get something. I, I did this based on uh, what I can see, and it's $276,000. That doesn't include the growth factor support that you often need to get through six cycles of AAVD. The authors here say that the difference uh, between six cycles of AAVD and ABVD is two hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. Let's just be conservative, call it a quarter million for a number to to treat a 27. You're talking six million bucks extra to save one life. If you take those numbers at face value. Um, Now, finally, what the author said here, which is something that I have been thinking is, you know, currently what we do is you do two two cycles of of chemo for Hodgkin's and you do an interim PET. And if the PET scan is clean, no disease, you de-escalate therapy. So you drop bleomycin. Or if it's really bad, maybe you escalate to be a cop. So what you could see is an incorporation of these results with what we know from other Hodgkin studies where maybe, maybe your stage three person or your person with an IPS of one or two or zero, maybe you do two cycles of ABVD and if the pet after two cycles looks bad, maybe you escalate then to AAVD instead of be a cop, perhaps. Or the other would be the person who has stage four disease or IPS of, of four or five. You do AAVD and then do an interim pet. They did not do interim pet in a study, which is now standard of care here in the States. So after two cycles of AAVD, if your interim pet is clean, maybe you just go to AVD. And you might say, well, we don't have data to do that. We don't have this is what they do in the hypertension guidelines. There are a whole bunch of 140 over 90 versus 120 over 80 studies, and you know, the results are kind of all over the place, so they're like, let's do 130. I could see that being something people advocate uh, doing going forward. Um, but we do have the, the survival rates here. There There is something here with Brintuximab-Vidote, and it's really sad if there actually is a, a large, significant benefit, and people minimize the chance of that because their primary endpoint was modified PFS instead of overall survival from the get-go, or just progression-free survival. You know, the study seems to be a little bit designed to to be favorable to the experimental arm, which is, you know, not uncommon. Um, But if it was designed to benefit patients primarily with overall survival, maybe there would have been greater uptake of this earlier and more accepting of what we see is what we see. Okay, so yeah, that's Echelon 1. A lot of people talked about this. I don't have anything deeper to add than that. Again, read that editorial by Longo and Armitage. I think it's Armitage. Uh, Really, really useful stuff. Okay, the next uh, long-term follow-up is POLO. So POLO, this was published, uh, I think, two years ago in England Journal Medicine. This is Olaparib maintenance versus placebo. People with um, metastatic uh, pancreatic cancer who have a, a BRCA1 or BRCA2 deleterious or suspected deleterious mutation. The original publication PFS uh, was 0. 0.53 favoring elaborate over maintenance. Uh, pretty large PFS benefit, and of course they ha- they had done I think 12 cycles of platinum-based chemo, and then they could they went to maintenance or placebo. Um, some of these folks were doing great on platinum. No reason to switch, right? So maybe not surprising you see this PFS benefit. Overall survival benefit is not there. The overall survival is hazard ratio is, you know, it's it it's not positive, right? It doesn't improve overall survival. Um, And oftentimes what you'll see in a situation like this where there's PFS benefit early and then there's no overall survival benefit, it's because the control arm in this group, in this case maintenance, got a whole bunch of study drug. They got a whole bunch of PARP inhibitor. That's not the case. Fewer than 30% of the patients in the control arm got Olaparib. So, you know, what appears to happen is that there's some benefit, but it's short-lasting. It doesn't maybe change the natural history of disease using PARP inhibitors in these folks, at least in the maintenance setting. Um, this was um, discussed at ASCO GI, I think in January of this year, and then the following month, our favorite guidelines actually took maintenance out of their guidelines. Still, elaborate listed there as a second-line option, but don't, don't, don't stop your Fulferinox or whatever and put them on maintenance elaborate. We now know that does not change the natural history disease. All right, the the next follow-up study I have to talk about um, is Keynote 355. This is Pembrolizumab plus chemo for triple negative breast cancer. Uh, The original publication was uh, 2020 and Lance at that time showed a PFS benefit, but only in those in the cohort of patients who had a PD-L1 score of greater than or equal to 10%. Um, this, we now have the overall survival data that shows there's, a, there's a, a modest overall survival benefit, but again, only for those PDL1 greater than or equal to 20%. Somewhat reassuringly, the hazard ratio, the point estimate is almost exactly the same for the PDL1 greater than 20% um, versus 10%. So, you just have to have enough PDL1, and there appears to be benefit. From this. this is slightly different than what we see, I think it's Keynote 526 was Pembro in the neoadjuvant and adjuvant setting, where there it's more PD-L1 positivity, like 1% versus 10%. So maybe a difference in this between the metastatic and non-metastatic population. <clears throat> uh, finally, what's um, interesting about this, and it muddies the water, is if we go back to the impassioned studies, 130-131, this was a map which is a PD-L1 monoclonal antibody, whereas Pembro is a pd one targeting monoclonal antibody. Um, atizolizumab plus nab-paclitaxel in triple negative breast cancer had a significant progression-free survival benefit. OS was not met um, uh, at that time. And then there was a similar study with paclitaxel that did not even show progression-free survival benefit. Atizo had an approval that was then taken away. People had talked about perhaps the reason that the NAB-paclitaxel study was positive and the paclitaxel study was negative is, of course, we have to give corticosteroids as a premed to prevent hypersensitivity reaction with paclitaxel. And perhaps those steroids blunted the efficacy of the atizolizumab. In this trial, in Keynote 355, it was chemo plus pembro or chemo. That chemo could be carbopem, which was the most common given here. 180 patients got carbopen. 99 got NAB Paclitaxel, and then only 44 got Paclitaxel. And if you look at the subgroup analysis, the Paclitaxel group appeared to do better with their hazard ratio of 0.34 with conventional Paclitaxel, to 0.63 with NAB Paclitaxel, and 0.88 with Carbopem. Um, now, um, those confidence intervals are incredibly wide, especially for Paclitaxel, because there are only 44 people in that cohort. Um, but it muddies the water here. I think what we've seen broadly is Pembro, has activity in triple negative breast cancer. Uh, Extrapolation to maybe other immunotherapy. Um, Not sure, not sure. All right, same with breast cancer. Affinity. This was adjuvant perjeta, herceptin, that's the APH in affinity. Adjuvant uh, pertuzumab and hertuzumab in HER2 positive breast cancer. The original publication, however many years ago, showed the benefit really was in lymph node positive patients. Here we have... The 8.4-year median follow-up uh, shows no overall survival benefit in the entire population. However, the invasive disease-free survival is fairly robust in the lymph node-positive population. Absolute improvement in invasive disease-free survival of 4.9%, whereas if you were lymph node-negative, there was no. Actually, you did better if you did not get pertuzumab. So, let's just say it's a 5% invasive disease-free survival. That's an tree of 20 call it 21 at 4.9%, kind of confirms what a lot of people were already doing, which is reserving adjuvant pertuzumab with trastuzumab only in those HER2-amplified patients who were node positive at diagnosis. Um, And again, they they do not have a formal statistical analysis for overall survival for those subgroups, probably not powered to do so. I'm not sure this is going to change practice um, for folks who are already doing pertuzumab for node-positive patients, they will. If you're doing pertuzumab for node-negative patients, probably should stop that. And the last one, maybe I just had five to talk about, is the E1912 study. This was a large CLL study published in NEJM in 2019. Um, FCR for six and only six cycles compared to brutneb and rituximab indefinitely. Um, maybe not indefinitely, but uh, I have to go back and look at this. I think the rituximab was for Uh, a year in this study. At the time, what we saw was a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival uh, favoring um, ibrutinib and rituximab uh, compared to CLL, but there appeared to be, you know, FCR seemed to be just as good in the mutated uh, IgHV, uh, immunoglobulin heavy chain. And, And when we see our overall survival analysis here, we see the same thing is that the hazard ratio for overall survival Way way in favor of ibrutinib or tuxmab, 0.35 for unmutated immunoglobulin heavy chain, but 0.72 for mutated, and that interval goes from 0.15 to 3.47, a lot of variability there. Um, so again, kind of confirming what we what we knew from that from that publication uh, all the way back. Um, a lot of folks are, uh, at least uh, physicians I know are a little bit scared of fludarabine, especially in older patients, so still probably not going to consider FCR um, unless you know that they have mutated uh, immune globulin heavy chain and, and maybe they they don't have the greatest uh, I don't know insurance and you're worried about them able will pay for a brutinib long term six cycles of FCR wham bam thank you sir or ma'am and we're done with treatment uh, which could be uh, beneficial uh, going forward well that is what I have uh, for this week some long-term follow there's some other other things I thought about talking about but decided, uh. Whoa! Uh oh. I have random music playing, uh, that I need to stop for copyright purposes. Ah. Okay, alright, let's not tell anyone about that, please. Um. Anyway, that's what I have. Thank you for listening. You can follow me uh, on Twitter at FarmDeetNip, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.